Alright, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for bringing us together, even if this is different surroundings, but nevertheless we know that wherever two are, two or more are gathered in your name, that you are there. And so we know and we feel your presence. We ask that you have the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, bless us in our efforts in trying to better understand uh, chapters 15 through 17 of the Gospel of John. These are difficult chapters at times that help us then to open our minds and our hearts to hear and listen and understand what you want us to out of these uh, passages. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Today we're going to cover, as I said, chapters 15 through 17. Uh, but before we do that, what I'd like to do is to have you look at the last sentence in your little commentary book here. The last sentence of chapter 14. I'm just wondering if nobody mentioned this last week, and I was just wondering if you had caught this. The last sentence on page 76 of chapter 14 is, get up, let's go, or let us go, okay? And then it starts into 15 as if that was not said. Then if you go over to chapter 18, the first on 87, it says, when he had said this, meaning get up and let's go, Jesus went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to where there was a garden. That was the Garden of Gethsemane. So that makes it appear that 15 through 17 was inserted at some other time. Does it not? And that is probably true. Because there is a disconnect, you might say, using the words of Dick from last week, uh, in the wording here between 14 and 18. And we find that chapters 15 through 17 were probably inserted at another time. Now, as I mentioned to you, I think, a couple of weeks ago, the Bible as we know it today, the, Old, the New Testament I'm speaking of, as we know it today, was not put together until the 4th century by St. Jerome. So, between the time of the writings of Paul, who was, as far as we know, the first to write these letters that are in the Bible, so between that time of the first century and somewhere towards the end of the uh, fourth century, there were a lot of copies made of the original letters and the writings. And so Jerome had to make some decisions as to what was inspired, what was to go into 
this Bible that he was uh, commissioned by Pope Damascene to uh, bring together into a volume uh, like the Old Testament. The Old Testament was put together as we know it today around the second century B.C. And so to sort of balance that, um, Jerome was commissioned to put together the writings that were in existence at that time uh, into a volume to complement the Old Testament and become the new. All right? So you can imagine that he had to collect a lot of things that were put together. And so the writings had to sort of conform to certain criteria that he set up. And one of the first things that he set up was that the writings had to be from the first century. That didn't mean that everything else was wrong or everything else was bad, because there were a lot lot of writings over uh, those 300 years, give or take a little. And so he had to make some decisions and to have a cutoff point. So the cutoff point, you might say, was the end of the first century when the last of the apostles, John, here, passed away. And so the writings had to be from that first century. And these writings probably uh, got into some of the manuscripts that were written or copied over that period of time, and others were left out. So we don't know exactly what the thinking was as to how these particular chapters got into this place uh, rather than some other part of the gospel, because they could have fit into almost any part of the gospel, since John's gospel does not run in a chronological order, as I've mentioned over and over. So I just wanted to kind of bring this to your attention, that these three chapters kind of stand out by themselves. And they are somewhat difficult, you might say, to understand, and yet I think they fit into the overall idea of John's gospel, which is a gospel, as we've said over and over and over, uh, a gospel of love. In last week, we saw one of the extremes that Jesus went to to show the extent of what that love really is for mankind by taking off his garments and uh, washing the feet of the apostles as an example uh, of what love is really all about. Love is service to mankind, not just for yourself, but service to other mankind, all right, and primarily uh, through the church, but not only through the church. It can be for anyone for a good cause, all right? Uh, today we're going to get into uh, not so much an example of, but a metaphor, a teaching on uh, what love is also. And so these various stories and teachings out of this gospel 
are really intended to explain to us today that our faith is a doing faith. We cannot just say, well, I love God and God loves me and that's it and sit back and do nothing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that think that way. I'm sure that none of you do, of course. But it's easy to get into that kind of mode. I'm a good person. I love God. God loves me. And, you know, I'm not going to bother or get involved with anyone else. Because that might just spoil it, spoil the picture. But that's not the case. Ours is a doing faith. Over and over in this gospel, Jesus says that we must do what the Father has asked of us. That is what it is all about. And in, for example, if you go back into uh, the letter of James, the Apostle James, He says that faith without good works is meaningless or self-serving. You have a number of people that would work, you know, from day until night. I knew a particular uh, woman in another parish, and this goes back years ago. She was at the church all the time, doing all kinds of things. But she had 12 children of her own. And most people used to joke about, behind her back, of course, that she went to the church to work to get away from the 12 children. (laughs) But you see, and I'm I'm not so sure about that. I I didn't know the lady well enough uh, to make a decision or a judgment, and that wouldn't be my place anyways. But if that is the case, that would be self-serving. That would not really be a uh, demonstration of her love for mankind. That would be getting away from her children. And that isn't what it's all about. So you've got to be not only careful in how you demonstrate your love, but what's behind it. Why are you doing that? Okay. So, with that, we're going to get into chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the story or the the teaching on the vine and the branches. And, of course, what a lot of people will think of, particularly here in California, is grapevines. And if you see grapevines, you know, at this time of the year, they're all dry and stubbly, but they have been pruned, okay? In fact, I was just uh, seeing here not too long ago on uh, TV a little segment on the news about a pruning contest that goes on in the Napa Valley every year to see who can prune a certain uh, number of vines the best and the fastest. Okay, And there were prizes and, you know, it's a lot of hoopla and so forth, Uh, but it's an important need for those vines. If vines, grapevines, are not pruned properly, then the energy that comes up in the springtime tries to enliven all of the old branches which won't produce. The fruit is produced only on the new vines. 
and therefore pruning is necessary. But you can't just go in and hack away. It's got to be done in a very certain uh, way, and the cut has to be on an angle and in a certain order. So pruning is very necessary, and that is what this teaching is really all about. The pruning, again, is a metaphor here for the troubles that we will often encounter in trying to fulfill God's will. Okay, it says, I am the brand, I am the vine, and my father is the vine grower. So he's sort of set in the scene of this metaphor here. He takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and every one that does he prunes so that it bears more fruit. You are already pruned, and he's talking to his uh, apostles here. Uh, you are already pruned because the word that I spoke to you remain in me as I in you, just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. Now, if any of you have done any pruning, roses, which is very common at this time of the year, and many other branches, you'll see sometimes that a branch will stay nice and fresh for quite a while. But there is a limit as to how long it will stay fresh and it will not produce new leaves or fruit of any kind and eventually withers and dies. Okay? And that's the way that Jesus is trying to tell us that our love for him, if it is not productive in doing something to bring us or someone else closer to him, then it is not productive and will eventually die. Okay. So this idea of remaining in him, that is remaining close to Christ, trying to better understand what he wants of us, now, you don't have to go through a lot of effort. This is not as much uh, of an exercise as many people make it out to be. They often think, oh, you know, the Catholic, I was just talking to somebody the other day, uh, and they said, oh, the Catholic faith has got so many rules and regulations and formalities and forth or so forth, that I just can't seem to get my uh, arms and a whole idea around it, and therefore it's easier to do nothing. I think, how sad, because really, once you get into the pattern of the Catholic faith, you'll find that it is actually uh, freedom in a way. Christ has talked about earlier in this gospel about freedom, the idea of being free from a lot of hang-ups, a lot of rules and regulations. Most of what we observe through our catechism is not so much rules and regulations, but statements of belief. And yet so many people look at it, they look at a volume of the catechism and say, oh, Look at how many rules and regulations there are. But really, 
they're not rules and regulations. They're statements of belief. And if you look at it in that way and absorb them in that way, it is actually relieving. Let me give you an example. For people who have told lies over and over, even though they may not be important lies, it over a period of time becomes binding. They become a slave to all of the wrongs that they have talked about, even though they may have not may not have been real serious. They get caught up in this and it becomes a facade that they have to maintain over a period of time. Uh, and yet, once they have cut this bindings, you might say, of doing this. Once they have cut themselves off from this habit, which it becomes, it is so freeing because they realize that what they were doing was really binding themselves into something that was not really them. And so we've got to start thinking about the whole idea that love is really a way to be free of a lot of hang-ups. <coughs> Excuse me. The idea of eternal life that is in this same section here. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want and it will be done for you for this is my fa- by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and become my disciples now what this idea of glorification here is i, I don't like the word glorification because in in our language today that sounds like something that is being put on. And, um, but what it is, the glorification, and you'll see more of this as we get into chapter 17, it is not so much uh, artificial homage and bowing and scraping, but it is a force that is run through the Trinity. The Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is a force of love that runs through here that we can be caught up into. That is what glorification is. When we observe and fill or fulfill the teachings of Christ in our life. We are then glorifying the Trinity, not just Jesus, not just the Father or the Holy Spirit, but we are glorifying the Trinity and we get caught up into this glorification, this force that exists between the three persons of the Trinity. That is really important to kind of try to get your mind around. 
I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I love you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And keep that in mind, because next week when we get into the passion and death of Christ, you will see that he is actually uh, giving us the ultimate example of what these words are right here. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Okay, And of course, that's what he did uh, in his passion. It wasn't something that he got caught up into. He was not a victim uh, in the sense that he was captured by the Romans and then put to death, it was that he offered himself uh, as the ultimate divine sacrifice that mankind, no other mankind, could do. Excuse me. Let's go on here. It says, if the world hates you, realize that it hated me first. Now, that seems to be contradictory to the idea of God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The world in this case is not so much the physical world, but those people who recognize Christ and the Trinity as their God. And of course, in most cases, this would apply to primarily the Roman Empire at this particular time. Um, But let us go on and we'll come back to this. If the world hates you, realize that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the world would love you, love its own. But because you do not belong to the world, and I have chosen you out of the world, the world hates you. And this is, of course, those people who are totally closed to the whole idea of who Christ is and what he stands for and the whole idea of the one true God. Okay. Remember the word I spoke to you. No slave is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. And they will do all these things to you on account of my name. He's really talking to the apostles because, as you know, all of the apostles, after the Pentecost Sunday event, went out and started preaching uh, all that they were aware of and the teachings that they were given and the inspiration that they received through the Holy Spirit. But they all faced a number of problems and eventually persecution 
because they were teaching things that were uh, or appeared to be against the Jewish faith. And of course, as they ventured past the Roman Empire boundaries, etc., they would face other forms of religious persecution. So all of the apostles were included in this, and it extends to down to us. How many of you know somebody who, particularly from a Jewish family, uh, in fact, any one of you who follows the Downton Abbey uh, program, you know, got caught up into that whole idea of Rose marrying the Jewish fellow and the problems that it created. Well, that is very common. Very common. Not so much out here in the West, but the further east you go, and particularly into the New York and New England area, the Jewish faith and the Jewish traditions and customs are extremely strong even to this day. And to marry outside of the Jewish faith uh, generally uh, results in that person being cut off from the rest uh, of the family. But there is a saving grace here that God holds out. It says, the advocate, when the advocate comes, the advocate, of course, is another title, you might say, for uh, the Holy Spirit. You have the advocate and the paraclete. Both are sort of reminiscent of legal terms. And the idea of paraclete, that's where we get the word uh, paralegal from, uh, an advocate, of course, is the same thing. Someone who is uh, extending his or her help to help someone else out in a very special way. And, of course, that's the whole job uh, or responsibility or role of the Holy Spirit is to help us take the teachings of Christ and all of those things that the Father gave us from the time of creation and through the build-up of the Jewish faith, he is now giving us the time and the help to understand how that applies to each one of us personally and that how we are to use it in furthering um, his plan of salvation as it applies to each of us. Each one of us has a small part to play in God's plan of salvation. And that is something that a lot of people just are not aware of or don't give it any time or thought. And yet, it's important that you do because when you start fulfilling your role in God's plan of salvation, he takes care of you. And he makes sure that you have the necessary tools to fulfill that plan. And it doesn't mean that you have to do great, big, and responsible things because of the number of people uh, on this planet. Uh, each of one, each of us has a very small part to play in God's plan of salvation. Uh, St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians, he says, I make up in my body what is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. 
And when I first heard that, I thought, what could be lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ? Everything was there. Uh Uh-uh. There is the door left open in the sufferings of Christ for each one of us to fulfill with a small part. That is so important that we look at what it is that God wants of us to do. I feel in my case that my being up <coughs> up here and sharing my knowledge of Scripture is what God wants of me. Every year after we've finished a, uh, a ten-week session, I said, well, Lord, is that it? <laughs> do I have to do more? <laughs> and... Uh, Somehow or other, you know, it's been 18 years here in St. Clair. Yeah. Uh, but I really enjoy doing it. And that's the good part. Once you really settle into accepting the role that God has planned for you, it becomes a joy just to fulfill. And that's something that I would encourage each of you particularly in these last few weeks of Lent, to think about and pray because it is something that you will really enjoy doing once you've really figured out what it is that Christ wants of you or God wants of you. And it may change over a period of time. I've been doing this for 40, no, 36 or 38 years, I forget. I I don't keep track. Uh, And it has changed a lot over the years. When I first started teaching, I'd get, you know, I'd be lucky if I had five or six people that would come. And gradually, you know, we have 81 or two people registered in this class now, and I've had as many as 100 in others. Um, And I love every bit of it. Let us go on. I have told you this, meaning I have warned you that there will be problems, that it won't be easy. And that's true even today for us as we try to fulfill our role in God's plan. It's not always easy. We don't always fully understand, but we have to trust. We have to trust in God. So it says, I have told you this, so that you may not fall away. They will expel you, meaning the Jews and those people who are against the teachings of Christ, um, will expel you from the synagogues. Now, why doesn't he say from the temple? Because... This was written long after the temple was destroyed. So, Judaism had to, you know, after the destruction of the temple and pretty much the whole city of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD, then most of Judaism was also destroyed in its formalities. That didn't destroy the people's faith. So they continued, and in fact, even the even in the synagogue system that started way back in Babylon got even stronger 
because they would meet in people's homes uh, and shelters and buildings of various kinds uh, to discuss the scriptures that they had. But the formalities uh, disappeared pretty much. The whole idea of animal sacrifice disappeared and did not get back into a formality until around the 4th century uh, A.D., of course. So it says, they will expel you from the synagogues. In fact, the hour is coming when everyone who kills you will think he is offering worship to God. Now, what do we have today? That's right. You know, some of the killings in uh, the Mideast are for this very same reason. Misguided, totally wrong, but nevertheless... People do, do get caught up into some of these uh, strange beliefs and carry it to extremes. They will do this because they have not known either the Father or me. So I have told you this so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. And then, of course, the whole idea is have faith. And pray, because sometimes when your hour comes, that's all you can do. But so many people, you know, get frightened when they know that they are dying, regardless of under what circumstances, that they forget about God and think about other things. One of the things that they think about most are those things that they should have done, should have taken care of when they had the time and the strength and the freedom to do so. So keep that in mind because don't put it off until uh, the day comes because you never know when that day is going to be here. All right, chapter 16 now gets into... The beginning of the end, you might say. Jesus' departure and coming of the advocate. I did not tell you this from the beginning. Remember, as I said last week, we are just now, uh, this late in John's Gospel, hearing about the Holy Spirit. And there was never uh, any real indication of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament whatsoever or in the early part of this gospel, and very little at all in any of the other three gospels. Because it is a concept that uh, had to kind of uh, come out a little at a time, particularly after Pentecost Sunday, the first Pentecost, uh, and it was something that was uh, difficult, you might say, for even the, the most believing person uh, in Jewish faith. Remember, this is always all addressed to the, the Jews of that time. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to the one who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? Because I told you this, grief has filled your hearts. That's natural, normal. Here is their Lord. They begin to realize that he is God. And now he's going away. 
Ooh, that sets up a lot of uh, things in their minds. None of you asks me where are you going, but because I told you this grief has filled your hearts, but I tell you the truth. It is better for you that I go, for if I do not go, the advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world again in regard to sin and righteousness and condemnation. Sin, because they do not believe in me. And the Jewish people, even today, still do not believe in the same way that we Christians do, or we Catholics, do not believe in personal sin, because they do not believe in a personal relationship with God. Righteousness, which is, again, as we've talked about, particularly when we were studying uh, Romans, righteousness is the idea of getting back on the right track to the Father. Because I am going to the Father, and you will no longer see me. Condemnation, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. And if we follow the ruler of this world, that is the evil one or the devil, then we condemn ourselves. Remember, God does not condemn anyone. We condemn ourselves by rejection, neglect, uh, or totally disagreement, whatever. Now, this whole idea of why did he have to go? Couldn't he stay here and continue on? Well, for two reasons. One, as a human being, no, he was subject to the same limitations that anyone else would be subject to as a human being. Uh, as God, he could have, but remember, there were three persons in the Trinity, and as we've shown you very often in that circular illustration that I gave you, that each one of those three persons has his own a particular role in God's plan of salvation in the same way that we, you and I, have our particular role in God's plan of salvation. And therefore, you couldn't have Jesus and the Holy Spirit operating among human beings at the same time. That's why he had to go. Okay. I have much more to tell you but you cannot bear it now. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you to all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears and will declare to you the things uh, that are coming. He will glorify me, again, this force, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In other words, he will take the teachings of Christ and declare them over and over and remind us. Uh, quite often, when I am preparing for a lesson, uh, I started to think about something and then I get stumped. And 
all I have to do is call upon the Holy Spirit to remind me of where I went off track or where I might be wrong or where I can find the right answer. And it works very, very well. Uh, It is something that a lot of people uh, feel is hocus-pocus or, you know, superstition. But it isn't. It is a quality that God has given us right here. And it will be very helpful if you sort of take it to heart and uh, use it. Everything that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I told you that he will take uh, from what is mine and declare it to you, and that is the Holy Spirit. A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while later and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to him, or said to one another, what does this uh, mean he is saying to us a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I am going to the Father. Now that has stumped scholars for centuries. Because when he says a little while, does this mean that after his death and resurrection, he will then come back and be with the apostles for a a little while? Or does this mean at the end of time when we are all united again together? Uh, And no one can come to a specific or a single answer to that question. My gut feel is he's really saying that this is in reference to the resurrection where he will spend 40 days or roughly 40 days uh, in and with his disciples or particularly his apostles uh, for uh, a period of time before ascending back to the Father. Well, no, there's nothing wrong with that because that would be true. That would be true. You'll see him, uh, or the apostles would have seen him at both. No, no. And of course, he's not speaking to us at this time. He's speaking to the apostles. Okay. So I don't think we need to worry about it. Hopefully, we will see him at some point in time, but primarily uh, when we die and go up to the pearly gates. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I have a question. Um, when you said that all the apostles were died, were all the Jews involved with their death? We don't know. That's a good point. Uh, I did say that all of the apostles, with the exception of John, uh, were martyred. That is the church's feeling. Uh, but the question was, were the Jews responsible, all the Jews responsible for the, all of those killings? We don't know. Probably not. Because many of the apostles went off into other areas beyond the regions of the uh, Roman Empire. And so I would think that it would probably not be just Jews that were responsible for those deaths. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, let's let's move on to the the difficult subject. Okay. 
How many of you have read uh, chapter 17 and just really understood it well? And yet, it is a very beautiful uh, passage, and what we're going to try to do is make some sense out of it, okay? The prayer of Jesus, or which is often described as the priestly prayer of Jesus, okay? And it sounds like it would be a prayer that would be addressed solely to the Father, and something that would be uh, offered in privacy. Um, but it wasn't. And it was a teaching, you might say, in the way that not only the apostles, but in the way that we should be conversing and communing, you might say, with the Father and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit, each in our own way. All right? Get really down deep and personal when you talk to God, whether it be uh, any one of the three persons of the Trinity. That is what he wants. That's what God wants of us, to get really personal and talk to him. And that is what this is all about. When Jesus had said this, and this is, of course, he's referring back to the previous, I told you this so that you might have peace in me. In the world you will have trouble, but take courage. I have conquered the world. Okay? His death is conquering the whole idea of spiritual death. When Jesus had said this, he raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Remember, he had talked about hour in many different uh, occasions throughout this gospel, beginning all the way back to the time of the uh, marriage feast at Cana when his mother asked him to do something about uh, the wine running out. He says, now the hour has come. Give glory to your son so that your Son may glorify you, just as you have glorified him, uh, I'm sorry, just as you gave him authority over all people, so that he may give eternal life to all you gave him. Again, glorifying means this force of love that radiates through the Trinity. Okay. Now, this is eternal life. He's talked about eternal life. I've talked about eternal life. The whole idea of life after death for those who believed in God and died in his good graces. Okay. Again, if you go back to um, page 32 for a minute. Verse 24. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in me, 
or believes in the one who sent me, has eternal life and will not come to condemnation. In other words, he's talking about eternal life begins here on earth now. Not when we die and appear at the pearly gates. We develop our own sense of salvation here. We can lose it, but it starts now when we accept God as our Lord and Savior and develop this relationship with him. So that's what it means. Now, if we go back If we go back to page 83, or, or let's, let's say 82, verse uh, 3, chapter 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they should know you, the only true God, and the one whom you sent, Jesus Christ. I glorified you on earth. By accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. That's important that you accomplish the work that you gave me to do. Because that is what he is asking us to do. He's giving us each a small part in his plan of salvation. And we glorify him by fulfilling that small part. Now glorify me, Father, with you, with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So he's talking about his returning to be united, reunited with the Father in heaven, and of course sending the Holy Spirit to take his place. says, I revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. They belong to you, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything you gave me is from you, because the words you gave me I have given to them. He's talking about the apostles. Now, it's important that we think about this group of 11 men, remember 11 here in this case not Judas Iscariot but the importance of this group of men God in Jesus Christ is upholding these men as somebody as a real sacred group of people true saints in the highest idea of sainthood And we should kind of think about that because that is what, when we talk about the church being one holy Catholic and apostolic, the word apostolic comes from these 11 men. And of course later, St. Paul was added to that group. So it's important that we kind of think about the level of holiness of this particular group. I revealed your name to those whom you gave me. Now, 
throughout this gospel and in, and in the other gospels too, the whole idea of name comes up quite often. The name of Jesus. Right? And you often hear people say, uh, particularly at the end of a prayer, and we say this in the name of Jesus, amen, etc., or in different forms. Uh, the idea of tacking on the words, the name, or the name of Jesus, is not a magic wand, you know. It is the idea of understanding who Jesus is and what he stands for. Because in the culture of Jewish writings, in the culture of that time period, the word name, Joe, Pete, Mary, Bill, whatever, uh, stood for not only what the person was called by his parents, but what the person stands for. It is far more than what we do today. In Jewish culture of this time period, you wouldn't walk into a group like this and everybody would be given a little sticker, you know, and put their name on it. My name is Mel, or Joe, or Pete, or Mary, or Bill, or whatever. Uh, no, no, no. You wouldn't do that. That would be against their culture. They did not disclose their name, their personal uh, name, to strangers. That was against their culture. The name was protected because it represented their whole being. And name was only used uh, among family uh, members but in serious matters such as contracts, okay, because contracts were all verbal at that time, not written. Agreements were always in a verbal sense. And if the name was attached, then that signified uh, the same as handwriting, because handwriting was not something that was written out um, or widely used in those days. It was the name. So a person's name was extremely important and always protected. So the whole idea of name in this case, and if you look down on page 83, just a little bit beyond halfway, it says, Revealing God's name is better understood as disclosing the essence of of the person, of the nature and the quality of God, rather than repetition of a proper name, just as I've said. You just wouldn't go around saying Jesus anywhere. And the whole idea of the commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, a lot of people think that that means, oh, you can't swear. Well, it means far more than that. It means don't take the whole idea of the person of God in vain. Don't take God for granted. That's what that commandment means. Not just don't swear. Because swearing had a totally different meaning in the culture of this time period. Swearing was taking an oath, 
as we do when we go to court or when we get a particular license or something, we swear that we're telling the truth, all right? Uh, but swearing uh, today is has a totally different meaning. What we're talking about here in the ten, in the commandment, thou shalt not swear or take the name of God in vain, means don't take the whole idea of the person of God in vain. It says, I do not take, um, wait, I'm sorry. I do not pray for the world, but for the ones who give, you have given me, for they are yours, and everything of mine is yours, and everything of yours is mine. In other words, God really is the origin and the beginning of all things, and therefore everything is owned in common between the Holy Spirit, uh, between the Trinity. Remember, I said there's never any disagreement or separation in ideas or goals that they all work in unison. So, and now I will no longer be in the world, but they, meaning the apostles, are in the world. Wow. While I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your person that you have given me, so that they may be one, just as we are. When I was with them, I protected them in your name that you gave me, and guarded them, and none of them was lost except the son of destruction, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and I speak this in the world so that they may share my joy completely. And they may hear what I'm saying, of course, is what it's meant. I gave them your word and the world hated them because they do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And that's important for us to know, too, that God will protect us when we are trying to fulfill his our, our role in his plan of salvation. Okay. So this idea of, of the world and in and out and so forth is really the whole prayer that Jesus is offering here in gaining this protection for the apostles. And then he goes on to pray for those who are to come afterward. I pray not only for them, that is the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's important because, again, that is one of the criteria used by St. Jerome when he's putting all of these manuscripts together into what we now have as the New Testament. That they will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 
and that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. This whole idea of unity is something that is very important and it is troubling uh, to really all Catholics, I believe. The fact that there are so many splinter Christian denominations. You know, up until the Reformation, everybody was Roman Catholic. No, no, I shouldn't say that. Almost everybody was Roman Catholic. We did have the, the Greek split off back in the 10th or 11th century. Okay. But almost everyone in the Western world was Roman Catholic. And then Martin Luther and his group began to break off and others came along later. Simply because they did not want to observe what God is saying right here in Jesus Christ. Is the unity that is the goal uh, and the hope of the Trinity. So he is praying again now for this unity that's so important here. I lost my place, but let's uh, let's go back a little bit here. Um, I pray for them, and not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is, all of those people, Christians, who have followed through the word of the apostles, so that they may uh, all be. I'm sorry, so that they may all be uh, one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and I have given them the glory that you gave me, the glory and, of course, uh, the glory of crucifixion, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, and that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me, and that you love them even as you love me. Father, they are your gift to me. I wish that where I am, they also may be with me, that they may see my glory that you gave me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that your love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The, wor the wording here is rather difficult. As you can see, I even have trouble when I'm reading it out loud. Um, and so I can imagine the trouble some of you may have had in trying to understand it uh, in reading it at home. But if you think about it in three different groups, or three different categories, you might say, okay, the glorification of, of the Trinity, okay, the protection that Christ is praying for for his disciples and all believers. Okay. 
then and now. And then finally, the unity that he is praying for of all believers, all Christian denominations. And there is a very faint uh, belief that the end of the world uh, will come only when all Christianity is reunited under one rule. Yes, Rita? No, no. Yes, no, that is not in the Bible. It, it has come from various uh, prophecies and predictions of saints, but nothing that can be um, pointed to as dogmatic or doctrine. Okay, It is a hope, but that's about as far as we can go. Any questions? Goodness gracious, we got through here sooner than I expected. <laughs> no questions? Yes, ma'am. What do I think about the second coming? Well, obviously there will be. Christ himself has told us that there will be a second coming of Christ, but that will be at the end of the world. And the end of the world, so the, the, the readings and some things I've read that once he comes there will be a thousand year reign of peace and resurrection. No. No, it's not fiction, it's a misunderstanding. Uh, she's talking about the thousand years reign. Well, uh, of peace, yes. Uh, but that's a misunderstanding of a um, statement made in the book of Revelation. Okay. Uh, there is no guarantee that there will be a thousand years of peace. And besides, what difference does it make for us as individuals? You know, we won't be here. Because when we die, that's it for us. Okay, so uh, this whole idea of looking to something that might be there out in the future, you know, it sounds good, and let's hope that happens, but there is nothing to in the Bible to say that that's true. Okay. Any other questions? I hear a lot of rustling here. Well, I'm not going to let you go for 20 minutes here. Goodness sake. All right. Many times. Yes. And I would prefer not to do it again. Uh, because it is, a, it is extremely difficult. And... It is not that helpful. Um, it is does not really predict anything regarding the end of the world. That is timing of when the end of the world is going to happen. And a lot of people think it does. The book of Revelation, in the same way as the book of Daniel, was written in apocalyptic language. What it's doing is portraying the 
the persecutions that happened in the first century. And it's doing it in sort of a disguised way, uh, using very uh, figurative language, because if it had come out and said straight out what was wrong with what was going on, it never would have gotten published because the writers would have gotten their you know, heads chopped off right away. So, in the same way with the book of Daniel, Daniel was written in the second century B.C. regarding the persecutions that came from the uh, Greek kings, the last of the Greek empire, who overran Israel at the time and tried to change things uh, to a Greek culture and forbid all of the, the Jewish uh, faith being followed as it was supposed to. And so it was written as if it was back in the 6th century B.C. in the Babylon Babylonian area or era. Um, to disguise a lot of the things that were being said so that the king in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, was really referring to Antiochus IV in the Greek uh, empire. So in the book of Revelation, you have a lot of the same kind of thing. It is trying to give hope to the people in the first century who were experiencing the persecutions that were started by the Jewish people, as it says here, they will expel you from the synagogues. That's where it got started. And it got out of hand. So then the Romans stepped in to kind of squash this dispute between one Jewish sect and another, that is the the Jews and the Christians. They didn't care about who was who or what beliefs were going on. They just wanted it stopped. The only thing is they made it worse and uh, destroyed in the process all of Jerusalem including the temple. And God allowed that to happen as a way of showing his uh, displeasure, you might say, with the Jewish people who rejected Christ and rejected the teachings uh, of Christ and the apostles. Does that make sense? Okay. So, the book of Revelation has some very beautiful passages, passages in it, as does the book of Daniel. Several of them are used in our liturgy, in both cases. Uh, after chapter, I think, believe it is 12, in the book of Revelation, where he talks about... Um, See, he's talking about the the woman uh, and her son, uh, and the ark of that's it. He's talking about the ark of the covenant, meaning uh, the Blessed Virgin Mother, who was an ark of the covenant, meaning Christ Himself. Uh, from that point on, it's giving us a taste of what heaven will be like but it's in reference to the people in the first century. So, very little of it 
very little of the book of Revelation really is applicable to us today. Except for the latter part, which of course we will experience hopefully at some point in time ourselves. Any other questions? Excuse me, Rita, just a, I mean, Rita, here Rita is behind you. Well, several times, you might say, okay? Uh, you can go all the way back to the 8th century B.C. Uh, or even to the 10th century B.C., where it was split into two kingdoms after uh, King Solomon died. His son took over, and the son didn't want to rule the whole Israel, so he split it into two parts, the north and the south. He retained the southern part, uh, and the northern part was given to a friend of his at the time. Uh, and it, the two names are somewhat difficult to pronounce, but the southern one was under Rehoboam, and the northern part was under Jeroboam. Okay? Uh, so they lost part of their land at that time. Alright? In the 7th century, 8th century BC, they lost the northern part altogether <laughs> to the Assyrians. Alright? In the 6th century, they lost everything again to the Babylonians. Um, they returned uh, in the latter part of the 6th century to Israel, but they were never part, they were never uh, true self-governing from that time on because they were under the domination of the Greeks and then the Romans. Okay, And they were that way until the destruction uh, of the whole area by the Romans in 70 AD. And they never really uh, regained control of that area until Harry Truman and the uh, United Nations gave it back to them in 1948. So you have all of this kind of constant uh, turnover. All right, Judaism in itself uh, was totally destroyed in the way it was at the time of Christ uh, in 70 AD and not reconstituted as a uh, faith until around the 4th century when um, can never pronounce that man's name uh, wrote the uh, Talmud the Talmud in the Mishnah which is the Jewish holy book um, in addition to the scriptures. That was done in the fourth century. Well, thank you, thank you. Yes. The, 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 the question is uh, where did I get all my book learning, you know? Well, I was in the seminary many years ago. All right. Before Vatican II and it seems like I always say the last century, the last millennium, I was there. Uh, but it was a great experience, and I kept up a lot of the reading of Scripture, and not only Scripture, but commentaries. And then when I saw 
the movie The Ten Commandments, you know, the Cecil B. DeMille, The Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston as uh, Moses. Uh, I thought, how did the Jews get to Egypt in the first place? And why? So it caused me to go back and read the book of Exodus. And then I had to go back to read Genesis because of Exodus. <laughs> and then I had to read the next book, you know, and it hasn't stopped. So, and you pick up all of this stuff because uh, I enjoy history. And when you relate it to religion or re- you relate religion to history, then it sort of connects. Look at it this way. History, brief, uh, let's put it this way. History formed the Jewish faith. Didn't cause the Jewish faith. That came directly from God. But history formed how it developed. Okay. But after Christ, Christ and our Catholic faith affected history. And if you put that together in, in a way, you can see how both affected each other at different times. History caused how the Jewish faith was formed, but after Christ and the destruction of the temple, it was Christianity who affected history. Nothing that you can imagine throughout the last 2,000 plus years was affected more than how Christianity affected the entire world. All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for many graces and blessings. We ask that you help us to better understand the whole idea of the love that emanates from you and the Trinity to us and that how we can and should participate in that love and by doing things, not just by uh, mentally saying that we love you and you love us, but help us to show us. So we ask your blessing in our efforts, particularly as we continue our Lenten observance and as we prepare for the great celebration of Easter. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.